0: What's up, Critical Thinkers? Kid Carson here. Our guest today is Dr. Stephen Pellick, professor at UBC. That stands for University of British Columbia. He, in fact, was uh, one of the first guests on my podcast way back on episode 16, talking about vaccinating your children. This guy's been speaking out for a long, long time. Really cool guy. Super smart dude. In fact, he's been able to get away with speaking out because he's got tenure. Tenure? I think it's pronounced tenure, I think. Anyways, it means that basically he can't get fired. His status in the world of professorship, is that, is that a thing, is so high that he can't be fired. He's reached, I believe, what is called tenure. So this has given him the freedom to speak out and talk about all the things. So he's back on the show today. But first, some sponsor love to z It's what I take every day. Z-Stack by Dr. Zelenko rest in peace. It's what you need as we head into fall. You know, he's the doctor that helped world leaders all over the planet get well when they got COVID. So check it out for yourself. ZStack by Dr. Zelenko. And you can find the link in the menu of my app in my Instagram bio or ZStack.ca slash kid. Thanks for being curious with me today. Let's jump right into it. Our chat with Dr. Steven Pellick. Hi, kid. There he is. The good doctor. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, right.
0: <laughs> Good to see you, man.
1: Likewise. Yeah. Thanks for the opportunity to um, actually catch up with you. Uh, what's happened over the last few months since we last talked.
0: Yeah. Well, someone mentioned to me you would be speaking at a rally, I think, coming up. Yeah. And they mentioned you'd be speaking and that you'd be sharing some of your new findings. And I thought, oh, my God. I thought, of course, I should check in with you and see see what's been going on. You were one of the first, uh, one of my first interviews. I mean, oh dude, the the um the people that just felt validated from all the suspicions that they had and then having a reputable guy like you coming out and saying, no, this is like what's going on. So anyways, thanks again for for that interview, it was amazing.
1: Yeah, um, well, I appreciate the opportunity. and And actually there are so many of us scientists that actually feel the same way looking at the scientific data. And I've been very fortunate being the co-chair of the Scientific and Medical Advisory Committee of the Canadian COVID Care Alliance. We have about 35 research scientists and medical doctors that are on that committee. And we meet weekly and we communicate by emails daily. And we're really looking at the scientific literature and and public health data and other data and really using critical analysis to figure out what's actually going on. Yeah, so I can talk about that. That'd be great.
0: I'm not sure if I told you this, just like a week or two before I was fired, my boss had taken me out for a beer. Mm-hmm. And he said to me so, and this is when I was being pretty outspoken on the radio station and on my social media. Mm-hmm. And he said, so like, between us, what's the deal? Do you just not believe in science?
1: Yes, certainly. <laughs> yeah, well, it seems like and public I- health officials aren't believing it either. <laughs> so right. And I, and I always wondered what the,
0: what the right response was. And I didn't have the right words. I was so shocked that he said this to me. But now um, now some time has passed and I think, okay, the right response is, well, yeah, I do believe in science. That's why I listen to scientists instead of getting my scientific data from politicians. Right. So now that's my line. I, I wish I could go back in time and have that one like locked and loaded.
1: <laughs> well, there's plenty of else that can back you up
0: a lot of my audience they're familiar with you obviously you're you're outspoken you are uh, a hero in in the circles of you know trying to get the truth out there and many of many of us heard your first appearance on this podcast but for someone who's stumbling across this somewhere online and is not familiar with you can you give us just a quick background sure. of who you are
1: well i'm a professor a full professor actually in the department of medicine at the university of british columbia where i've been on faculty for 34 years and I'm, I'm a very active research scientist. I've published about 250 scientific papers in peer-reviewed journals. I'm also the founder of Connexus Bioinformatics Corporation, which is my second biotech company, but this company has been in existence for 22 years, and we've done research for about 2,000 labs in 34 countries around the world, both academic and industrial. And I'm also, as I mentioned earlier, uh, co-chair of the Scientific and Medical Advisory Committee of the Canadian COVID Care Alliance. And in the, in the con capacity uh, w- with Connexus Bioinformatics Corporation, I've actually led a clinical trial in which we've tested pretty close to around 3,800 people now, whether or not they have antibodies against the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And that includes people that have both had natural immunity as well as uh, vaccinated. And so now we're in a position to be able to compare how good and robust is a natural immunity and lasting versus what we see with the vaccines. And And really the natural immunity has it hands down. So we can talk about that.
0: It's funny now that the CDC is coming out with all these new regulations that, oh, it doesn't matter now. <laughs> I mean, after everything that's that's come to pass over the last couple of years. When you read something like that, like what's your reaction? Well, I
1: I think it's good that they're coming around to recognizing what the data is actually telling them. So just to recap, I mean, basically they're saying that that people that are vaccinated or unvaccinated should be treated the same, that you don't need to do the social distancing anymore. Uh, The quarantining is not necessary. If you're in contact with a person who's had COVID, you don't have to go into quarantine yourself. And so they're they're really pushing that, that really people, in fact, and also mask wearing, you, unless it's in a, a zone of really high transmission, they don't recommend a mask wearing anymore. So the question is, well, why is this all happening now? And uh, one explanation is that they do have elections coming up for Senate. And I think they're trying to reduce the amount of restrictions and anxiety amongst the population, when it comes time to vote, so I think that's the timing of this.
0: Now it's come out; the documents have shown that a lot of these idea, this, this idea of masking on airplanes or the, the restrictions yeah. of going to restaurants with the with the QR codes, was politically motivated. That there was no science that's, saying that that
1: helps. Absolutely, yeah, that was demonstrated in court under cross examination, where they asked officials that were actually from Canada Public Health, and they never recommended these measures, these are actually completely politically motivated. And how does that make you feel? Well, you know, you see so much of this abuse going on for the last couple of years, it's, it doesn't surprise me. Um, I'm disappointed that there, it seems like it's political science that's driving things as opposed to actual um, science that's health related. And that's disappointing. But I think what happens is we have a a dynamic where we've got the politicians really are trying to do what they think is the best thing. And they're listening to the population and they wanna err on the side of caution. So, and they wanna be seen as doing something. So I think we had a lot of these measures early on and public health sent the messaging to mainstream media and then mainstream media, because, you know, if it bleeds, it reads, the worst case scenarios start to get uh, presented, and then it gets the anxiety up in the population, and then they go to their politicians, and it's just a vicious cycle. Mm. And, you know, it's, you know, chicken little, the sky is falling, and, and this is basically what happened. And it, it's hard to get people to first to get the information that seems to be contrary to the mainstream message, which is basically the virus is deadly, that the vaccines are safe and they're effective. And so this has been the mantra. And slowly, as the data has come out, clearly all three of those statements are incorrect. And so trying to to then re-steer basically the public opinion in a direction that's more representative of the truth it's it's a hard call because people are still very afraid of this virus and Mm. if they had more information about it i think they would be less less concerned and in fact when you start to look at polls of public opinion on you know whether we should be continuing these measures um really people think it's time to move on even though the politicians may not think so, the general public does. And then the politicians will catch up with the public again. And I think you know, we're going to get back to some form of normalcy, I think, fairly soon. Has
0: the damage been done? A lot of the scary videos and stories that we're seeing of
1: uh, professional athletes that are collapsing. Yeah, on yeah. The fields, that happens. And this seems to be linked to myocarditis uh, quite strongly or irregular heart Uh, arrhythmia, heart beating. And so this is a concern. I mean, the data that we have that's coming in now is basically showing that since we vaccinated, not before we vaccinated, all-cause mortality has gone up in more than 29 different countries around the world. And so that that increase is in the order of about 10 to 11% above what we would normally see and expect. And, and that includes, you know, increased rates of cancer in addition to, to heart problems. It's funny, at the same time that the all-cause mortality is going up, we're actually seeing about a 10% reduction in births in countries. Mm. And wow. there's a variety of explanations that, you know, can be offered for that. Um, some of it may deal a lot with the psychology of, you know, being in the pandemic and, and people being concerned about the future, maybe decide they don't wanna do family planning at this point. But the reality is, when you look at a person who's been vaccinated, who's fertile, about over 40%, and this is multiple studies that have shown this now, about 40% of those women experience irregular menstrual cycles, usually heavier bleeding, prolonged bleeding. And so that shows you that this very systemic effects of these vaccines. It's not just having an immune reaction, you know, in your shoulder where you're vaccinated. The effects of this is is permeated throughout the body. And of course, with the irregular menstrual cycles, this could also be affecting fertility. And so we do see this 10% drop. And, And the funny thing is that we also see a reduction in sperm counts after vaccination. So mm. maybe some of the factors that are contributing and there, it's quite controversial, you know, is there an effect of vaccination on on pregnant women when they're vaccinated and the studies that come in, they're varied in terms of what the message seems to be. There was a study, for example, that was done just recently uh, involved the BC Women's and Children's Hospital, but it was really across Canada. And they looked at over 5,000 women who had been vaccinated that were pregnant. And they found that there was very low rates of actual um, COVID-19, which you, ex- which you actually would normally see. But they were interested in vaccine injury. And they were looking at about a week after they were vaccinated. And their report was that there was no increased rates of of the symptoms of uh, vaccine injury in that group compared to actually a much larger group of women that were not pregnant, but 150,000. But the problem is they compared that group of over 5,000 that were pregnant, that were vaccinated with unvaccinated women, and they only had about 360 in that group, and only about one of them actually developed COVID. But the the symptoms were actually very similar between that group. But the problem is when you've got such a tiny group that you're comparing with statistically, and you're only seeing evidence of injury in only just a a few people, a difference of a one or two people can have dramatic effects on the statistics. So that study concluded, at least after a week after vaccination, that there was an increased injury. At the other extreme we can look at cdc data that's reported from the united states and in the original pfizer's trial they had like 29 women that were vaccinated that that were pregnant and 28 out of the 29 were unsuccessful in their um in their the the babies were miscarriages so that's that's you know a frightening statistic So we're seeing data that, that spans the gamut this way in terms of what the vaccine injury is for pregnant women and to the children. At this point, I think you're better to be on the side of caution. And if you are pregnant, don't get vaccinated. And I can tell, I can reveal that we haven't published this work yet, but we have had people who have been vaccinated that that were breastfeeding. And I can certainly see that they have antibodies against the SARS-CoV-2 virus in the breast milk. And and you kind of expect that. I mean, in fact, that's a good thing because you're passing on immunity to your your baby. But what I'm trying to sort out right now is some preliminary data where I'm actually seeing spike protein that's in the the mother's milk. And um, you know, I validated this with three different antibody probes for the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. And they give me the same result with three different independent measures. Um, but there are potentially other explanations. So I don't wanna get people all worked up about it, but there isn't enough data about this in the literature to know what's going on. We do know the phenomenon of shedding occurs and people have... Um, there's been almost nothing in the scientific literature on this phenomenon. But because I've been running this clinical trial for two and a half years, and I've talked directly to well over, in terms of actual conversations like this to over a thousand people, they tell me their stories and many of them are unvaccinated. They talk about how they're next to someone who's vaccinated and they get all these symptoms happening um, Mm. when they don't even know beforehand that that person was vaccinated. So we wow. think there is this phenomenon of shedding. It's probably breakdown products of cells that are destroyed that, that when the vaccine basically impregnates those cells and delivers the RNA and you produce the spike protein on the surface of these cells, the immune system attacks. It generates these pieces. We call them exosomes. And somehow these exosomes get shed that contain the spike protein. And maybe they collect in in, in uh, mother's milk. I, I need to sort this out a lot further, no. but we need to do more research.
0: What would that potentially mean if you're um, passing on the spike protein uh, through shedding?
1: I don't think that's a phenomenon which is dangerous to the recipient. If anything, they're just they're just getting kind of like a natural vaccination. You know, they're taking in the spike protein, their immune system recognizes it and thinks it's the virus. And so they make antibodies and induce an immune response. I mean, this is the thing. When you get COVID, the symptoms that you experience are largely from your own immune system and your own body fighting the infection. So so when you get vaccinated, you actually get the same symptoms, except of course, it's not, ideally, it's not, not, developing into where you're going to have a severe COVID case, and now you have damage to organs. But your immune response, what you feel, is actually the same. And that's why when people who are vaccinated, about 70% of them actually do experience the same symptoms, at least early on, that they would get from COVID. So if you're trying to avoid getting sick, well, actually, you're going to get sick from the vaccine, most people. Whereas when you look at infection with the virus, most people at this stage actually don't have any symptoms. They're Mm. asymptomatic, but they still get the benefit of that exposure and natural boosting of their immune system. So when you have the virus very prevalent as it was, especially during the waves, uh, especially like, you know, at the end of last year, and the beginning of this year, over 40% of Canadians, it's been documented by Canadian Blood Services and and the Canadian Immunity Task Force has published this that over 40% of Canadians have had Omicron. So they have antibodies against this particular variant that will protect them in the future from future variants, which these variants will have evolved out of the Omicron variant. So, in fact, they've been naturally boosted and don't really require. Uh, any kind of vaccine boosting.
0: Going back to the uh, the breastfeeding, the, the spike protein being passed through the breast milk to the baby, if that's happening, is that a concern?
1: No, because um, I think this, well, the spike protein is pathogenic, but you have to remember where are these antibodies going when the baby is sucking the breast milk and it's going into the gut of the baby. So those kind of antibodies that come in, they will provide some protection in the, the upper, um, the mouth and the throat, and maybe a little bit into the lungs if it spills in there. Um, and then into the in the, the gut system and in the gut, you have digestive enzymes, they break the spike protein down, it's not that easily penetrating through into your bloodstream of the baby, for example. So mm-hmm. but it will trigger an immune response. And if Babies actually don't have, they don't really produce antibodies. You now, We we've learned this, I guess, uh, very early on in the pandemic, in May of 2020. We actually tested six-month-old babies that had not been breastfed, but we found that actually there was no antibodies detectable against SARS-CoV-2 in these babies. It's only as they get older that they start to develop what we call our our uh, adaptive immune system. These are B cells, lymphocytes that produce antibodies, and T cells, lymphocytes that seek out cells that have been infected with a virus or a bacteria, and it kills those cells, and thereby preventing the propagation of that virus or bacteria. Ooh. So, so that that develops over time. But babies and young. Young children, they have a very strong what we call innate immune systems with macrophages and neutrophils and other immune cells. They're not very specific in recognizing a target, but they're very effective at actually taking out what seems to be foreign. And so that protection alone is sufficient and explains why it is that young children are at very, very low risk of COVID-19. And this is very different from influenza, for example, because with influenza, the elderly and the children are at risk, but with COVID-19, the children have never actually been at high risk. And that's why it's really questionable. Do we really need to have these, uh, these vaccines for six month old babies? So as you probably know, this has been just recently in the last month or so, um, approved in first United States and then Canada. And if people knew what the clinical trial data was that supported that, they'd be astonished. I mean, they had 5,000. So we're talking about from six month old to just under five year olds. They had 5,000 roughly um, children that were registered in this trial. Three quarters of them never finished the trial. The trial was designed to see if you had two shots of the vaccine, what was the protection from reducing your occurrence of COVID-19 as measured with a PCR test and some, some symptoms? Well, out of the 1,500 or so that actually went through the trial, they actually had to go beyond two shots, because with two shots, it was no scientific data that showed any benefit whatsoever. In fact, it was negative efficacy. They seemed to have a slightly higher rate. So then what happened is they did a third shot. And after the third shot, with those 1,500, around 500 of them were unvaccinated, and about 1,000 of them were vaccinated. So at the end of the day, the number of children that developed COVID between the two groups was one child, a single child, but because you had twice as many in the group that was the vaccinated than the unvaccinated, and you calculate what's called the relative risk reduction, even though only you know a, a couple of children basically got COVID out of that entire trial you have relative risk reduction of about 76%. And that was after uh, about a month after the third shot. So we don't even know how long it lasts after that. Mm-hmm. On that basis alone, a difference of one child, we went ahead and approved the vaccinations of millions of children across you know, North America. It's, it's incredible. The bar is so low now in terms of <laughs> You no, our uh, regulatory agencies approving, and, and this is what's called a bridging trial. So this means that that as long as they get an end effect that's similar to what they saw in, an, in an, uh, an age group, in terms of the immune response, that would be sufficient. They didn't have to do all this kind of safety testing. It was really just to see, do you actually uh, reduce the occurrence of the uh, infection? And so wow. that's it. That's what's justifying the kind of going out there and vaccinating, like say, millions of children, and, and wow. that that's worrisome. Now, the other extreme is well, what happens if they actually did some real safety testing? And and finally, we have some data out of Thailand just about a week and a half ago. And in that study, what they did was they took thirteen-year-olds to eighteen-year-olds. They had at the end of the day in terms of what was in the study the complete study was 301 children from from i guess bangkok and they went after their second injection with the Pfizer vaccine they went and they actually measured were there any evidence of cardiovascular disease in these children because already there had been data in the scientific literature that show that with about one in 5,000 roughly, Um, the numbers vary a little bit, but they're all pretty in the same ballpark. So one in 5,000 children that get myocarditis, that's symptomatic. If they're males, the second shot of a Pfizer or Moderna vaccine. So that's symptomatic. Bear in mind that the number of people that would also have asymptomatic myocarditis that means they don't have the symptoms they weren't like exercising really hard like kind on of a field and then all of a sudden you know have what feels like a heart attack but they have the same underlying damage to their hearts which is permanent so in myocarditis the immune system infiltrates the heart it kills cardiomyocytes the heart muscle cells and then that's replaced by scar tissue, which is is, is non-elastic, uh, sorry, is non-contractile. So the, the the pumping of the heart has to be done by the surviving muscle cells. So they get bigger to compensate. The heart gets bigger. So you can actually see this by MRI measurements, this magnetic resonance imaging. So so they did MRI uh, on these. Children from, from uh Thailand. And they also measured the occurrence of uh if you have heart damage, you can produce proteins from the heart that are unique to the heart, troponins, for example, and to see if the, there's an elevation in the levels of these troponins. So they did this. They found, and I should you know preface that of those 301 children, about two thirds of them were male. So they had seven children that had either symptomatic myocarditis. They actually felt something, but one of them uh, went to hospital. Uh, they had uh, asymptomatic myocarditis. So they didn't have the symptoms, but they actually had the damage that they could measure. And one, some of them had pericarditis. So it was seven males. So it's seven males out of 200 that they looked at. That is a one in 29 occurrence of evidence of heart damage in these 13 to 18 year olds from the vaccine. So we're not even talking one in 5,000, which in itself is is of great concern, because if you get myocarditis, and again, the the data varies, but in one study, it indicates that 20% of People that get viral myocarditis that symptomatic die within a year. Another study at the other extreme, it's about uh, six and a half years that you get about twenty percent deaths. Anyway, you look at it, it, it look, it, it's not acceptable. So and these are kids thousand, getting one in one twenty-nine. Well, this is this is just like horrific.
0: And if these are kids, I wonder what the implications are of. I guess you're still growing and your heart's still growing.
1: Right. So, I mean, I think that's part of it that where the concern in the children is especially problematic, but I also would, um, I would kind of like people to think, well, the reason why we can see this in children is because myocarditis is extremely rare. However, as we get older, more people develop myocarditis. So when you have the vaccine, it's really hard to see over a background of a lot of myocarditis because the major cause of death after cancer is heart disease and Mm -hmm. myocarditis is part of it. So I don't see any reason why the underlying mechanisms that, that are probably promoting the myocarditis in children isn't also occurring in adults but I just don't think that we can measure it as easily. So I do believe it, it is likely to be happening and it's permanent damage. So one of the things that, that really bugs me is that, and even in this study that was published from Thailand, they said that these children, after about two weeks, you know, their symptoms went away. Well, it's, and so people, doctors say, well, it's mild myocarditis. But you have to understand; they're talking about the symptoms that you know—the initial pain and and the effects that they're seeing. The heart has compensated for it now, and it's it's gotten its other cardiomyocytes to get bigger. The heart's gotten bigger, and so it's trying to reestablish itself. However, mm-hmm. when you have a larger heart and you you're exerting yourself, you're actually um, your blood pressure goes up really high, and during that that time, you have you're more prone to have breakage of platelets. And, and this can actually seed arteriosclerosis, which is the clogging of the arteries, which then you know basically leads you down a one-way path for, for cardiovascular disease that eventually will be lethal. It'll, it'll slice the years off your life. So when you're starting children early on in this process, then you can expect that their life expectancy will be shorter and they will have complications and if you're a professional athlete i can understand now why because you're really pushing your body many of us are very sedentary you know we get older the underlying damage may well be occurring we don't notice it because we're not pushing our bodies as we're adults as much as a child often does and as you point out a growing child so I think that the same damage though, is still happening underneath. And if we were actually measuring this, we would know this. Now, there were studies done after vaccination by Charles Hoff, for example, and uh, the doctor. Early on, he, he did what we call the D-dimer test. So this, is a, this D-dimer is formed from um, a byproduct of clots. So he found that as many as 70 to 80% of the people that were vaccinated soon after they were vaccinated actually had D-dimer levels that were very, very high. And that's been reproduced by other medical doctors that have looked into this. So it is a, a sign that we are having broad you know, uh, changes in certainly the, 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 the blood system right, from the menstruation through to the, the D-dimer levels. And now with these children that have been critically examined, which should have always been done in the original clinical trials, um, we can see that there is a significant number of children at risk and probably adults.
0: I've seen a few different people, including, uh, Mike Adams, you know, AKA the health Ranger show almost like these long rubbery things that have grown in people's veins
1: that, uh, well, you know, I'll tell you. In the 1960s, you know, we had the Vietnam War. and as a consequence, we had a y- lot of young soldiers that, that died or were being operated on, you know, in the battlefield. And American surgery really advanced during that time because they had a lot of practice. And one of the astounding things that they found was that when they looked at these 18 year olds even, they actually had arteriosclerosis. Now a plaque actually is kind of like a whitish, um, jelly-like material that is what actually clogs your arteries. And interestingly, when you, you cut open these arteries and you pull out the plaques, they actually have the interior shape of all the blood vessels. So it looks like you're pulling out like like a little tree of all Mm. these little extensions. And so hmm. it's not hard for some of these to break off and seem like they're little worms or something like that. And so when you have a person who's died, and this is where, in fact, where this information is coming from, is from very few autopsies. Part of the problem is that when a person dies from COVID, they don't do autopsies. And people are nervous that, well, this body is you know riddled with the virus, and the, they don't want to do this kind of analysis. Um, so the ports that come up is an individual usually, not a number of people. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that when the body is actually dead, you can have all kinds of changes in the blood system and it goes through quite a, a transformation. In fact, it's kind of interesting. The concept of vampires comes from the observation that when you put bodies in the ground, we know that the that you get rigor mortis and the blood will clot and probably that includes interactions with with arteriosclerosis but then eventually the blood dissolves and becomes liquid and so that's why the concept that if you had a vampire that you dug up from the ground and you stabbed it in the heart all of a sudden it would start to bleed it's a fluid where it normally wouldn't be and because of of the pressure you apply to the heart air comes through the lungs and the mouth and it's almost as if the body is sighing at the mm. time that you're putting the stake so you know when you have a body that's that's dead there's all kinds of things that are going on in that body and so i wouldn't get too worked up by the observation of um what appear to be abnormalities. They may very well just be parts of plaque.
0: Well, I never thought I'd have uh, Dr. Pellick talking about vampires. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Well, we can talk about (laughs) werewolves too. (laughs) What about This is the other thing that's really wild is to see all of these headlines talking about sudden adult death. Yes, the major cause of
1: death in Alberta now. Yeah, I wonder what it could be. It seems they've only started coincidence with the vaccines, yes. I think, you know, in reality, I do believe the vaccines are partly responsible for this, but there are many other factors that are at play here. I mean, when you have the kind of stress that our population has been under for the last two and a half years of the pandemic, and many people not seeing their doctors when they already have other comorbidities, including especially cancer, So these things get more developed and are not not really treated as as early on as they should be. All these factors will contribute towards all-cause mortality. But it's very interesting that there is no increase in all-cause mortality in Canada and certainly these other countries, I I mentioned 29, prior to the vaccination when the the virus is already around for about a year. It's really after that period. And of course the virus itself has evolved to be more mild. So for example, the Omicron B1 version that came out just by the end of last year is about four to five times more deadly than the the, uh, Delta version. So you have a virus that's actually causing less deaths. And when we look at the all-cause mortality, we can see it actually is not due to COVID-19 itself it's actually a very minor part of that that increase in deaths. So it really does seem that, well, what's the other big difference? And and that is the vaccines itself, which we have in the VAR system. This is the vaccine uh, um, injury reporting system that the United States has. It's been set up for about 30 years. So there's been apparently uh, well over 80 different vaccines during that period of time that have been introduced into the market. And when we look collectively at the total number of vaccine injuries, hospitalizations, deaths associated with the three COVID vaccines that they had in the US, uh, they, didn't use, they didn't do AstraZeneca down there. We actually see more cases of deaths and, and, and severe COVID with those three vaccines than all the other vaccines put together for the last 30 years. And the Mm. whole point of the VAERS system was as a warning system that there may be issues with these vaccines. And there's been tens of thousands of deaths that have already been recorded in the VAERS system. And if you compared it to, for example, like influenza vaccines, we have about, in the last year, over 500 times more reports of injury with the COVID vaccines and the influenza vaccines. And a lot of people have been taking influenza vaccines. So, you know, and historically for 30, 30 years. So it it tells you that these vaccines actually aren't that safe. And the problem is that the more that you get boosted, the greater the risk that you actually will have vaccine injury. And mm-hmm. And, When you're facing a situation where the virus is evolving to be more mild, which is what we expect it to do, it it should become more infectious and it should become more benign. This is the way that that virus can compete with the other variants and other viruses to spread into a population. So the threat has actually been dramatically reduced from the virus itself, but the threat from the vaccine to treat it has actually been escalating. So hmm. that's that's the you know, informed consent when you make a decision what you should do, you have to to know that and then make an intelligent decision what is right for you, depending on your demographic and risks.
0: Is there any other information that's that's new that might surprise us since the last time we
1: spoke? Oh geez, there's so many things that you know comes out almost almost like every couple of days, there's something new. Sometimes it's revelations related to health policies, what guided them to make these decisions. Uh, we're learning more and more that, that, that some of the political decisions, as, as you pointed out earlier, with respect to getting on airplanes. Um, I mean, there's been just all these revelations, like, for example, the mandates that we had for vaccination passports, right? And the closure of restaurants and and movie theaters, even our own public officials, uh, um, Patricia Daly, you know, she admitted the reason for going ahead and doing this is not because these are zones of high transmission. It was because we want to encourage people to get vaccinated. Now, what's interesting is in B.C. we still Dr. Bonnie Henry and the Public Health Office of BC, they wanted to make sure that all healthcare professionals had to be vaccinated. And that resulted in a significant portion of people to when they actually had to, if they were in a hospital setting, to actually resign or be fired or move on to some other place like Alberta. So we we had a reduction of over 2,500 workers, you know, in BC, and now of course we have a shortage of I think around 4,500 nurses in BC. So we have this healthcare problem that now just short of a million people in BC, you know, you have 5.3 million people in the province, don't have a family doctor, and the family doctors themselves that are still practicing. They're under immense pressure because, on the one hand, they're hearing from the public health you know, colleges of physicians and surgeons that they should not dissuade people from getting vaccinated. And they should not prescribe things like ivermectin and other promising uh, compounds for treatment of COVID-19. So if they do, then they are at risk of losing their license, even though the public health office itself, you know, as a medical doctor, you take the Hippocrates oath, which means first you do no harm. And so they have to still be very careful what they say to their patients because they didn't know what patient will decide to go ahead and report them to the college. And then mm-hmm. they're under scrutiny. And I know doctors, they're going through this right now, And it's horrific for them because, you know, they've dedicated their life, they wanna treat their patients, not just the COVID ones, but all of their patients. And so, and there is a shortage of doctors and this huge demand and some of these ones, doctors I know are working from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. So it's not, and they're not being paid that much actually when you consider uh, what they have to face with their overheads. So it's, it's a real burden on the doctors. The patients are suffering as a consequence um and and Bonnie Henry has been nowhere to be found for the last few weeks. Um I'm not we don't we don't know what happened to her. We do know that she's being sued, but uh she sort of disappeared from the equation. She still has this order, the only one I'm aware of in Canada that BC healthcare professionals should at least be reporting their vaccine status to the uh the, the colleges that they belong to. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, it's we're still pretty deconian. In fairness though, to the public health office, they've not enforced any vaccine mandates or even masking mandates in the colleges and the universities. And so to my knowledge, this is not happening in BC, but by contrast, in Ontario, for example, there are universities like McMaster that are requiring their students to be vaccinated, and that they wear these masks. You know, masks that, at the end of the day, actually there's really no good solid data that they actually work. And the demographic that is being vaccinated in the university, with the students, they're actually a very high risk from the vaccine. So, mm. so you know, so in some respects. We've been a little bit more sane in BC than some of the other provinces, but um, but still we have we've been pretty draconian in other measures, and it's it's slowly getting better. But we know we still have restrictions um, uh, in terms of travel. If you're unvaccinated, getting on planes still um, certainly coming into the country, uh, we have this problem. So it, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done to. First, get rid of these crazy mandates at this stage. And second, to educate the general public, of which a significant number of these people are at an immense fear. I think you and I, we still see people driving around in cars by themselves, wearing masks, or you know, running you know, on a on a, a, a dike in Richmond or something like that. Well, riding their bikes it, alone with the mask yeah. on. Yeah. I mean, these, uh-huh. these people are scared and uh-huh. they're terrorized, and the only way that we can help these people is with more of us just living life normally at this stage, and then they'll have that reassurance that well, this is, it looks like everything's okay, you know, and then 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 they can be relieved of the tension and stress that they're under, which itself reduces their immune system and mm. makes it easier for cancer and infectious diseases to take hold. So yeah. we, we have a healing process that we have to go through as a society.
0: I'm glad you brought it back to um, empathy for the people that we see, because it's so easy. I'm guilty of it too. You're, you're driving along and you see the guy with double mask riding his bike on the side. And the first thing you want to think is, Oh, I'm a moron, but yeah. you're right. It, they're scared. And yeah. we have to remember that.
1: And, and the problem is those that haven't been vaccinated, you know, we're, we're in a state where, okay, you know, thank God we didn't get vaccinated because we've learned more now and we made the, what we feel is the right decision. And again, that decision depends on the individual, right? Because if you have comorbidities, you're very obese, uh, you're very elderly, you may be able to make a case that the, the risk of the vac- of the COVID-19 for severe illness and death May outweigh the risk associated with the vaccine. But I would say for people under 65, that equation is definitely on the side that the vaccines are more dangerous now than mm. the virus. Yeah. So, so these people, what do you do when all these reports of you've been strongly encouraging vaccination and then you see loved ones and, you know, family and friends? colleagues that turn out to actually have harm from the vaccine um, you, you you I would imagine that that segment of the population will be actually very upset that they've been been misled basically about what the risks were and the 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 thing that is most discouraging, is that we still have the public health officials pushing these vaccines on children and on people, saying still, even today, that, you know, the virus is deadly, that the um, vaccines are efficacious, and that they're safe. I mean, you know, there was one study done, for example, in um, New York State. They had over nine hundred thousand children, and they followed and found that basically uh, most of them already had natural immunity to begin with. But when they actually looked at the efficacy of the vaccine, this is against Omicron, um, that actually it was it was it was barely like seventeen percent. So there was really no efficacy of the vaccine at all. And in fact, when they follow these people out, like about three or four months later, they had negative efficacy. So, so in fact, all the data that we're seeing now is showing that the more you're boosted, firstly, when you're first boosted, you're at a slightly higher risk of getting COVID. And again, we think that's due to what we call antibody-dependent enhancement. You get a period of protection, maybe three to four months, if you're lucky, and then you're actually at greater risk of getting COVID-19. And and so when you go to the hospitals now, BC, anywhere in North America, probably Europe, 90% of the people that are in hospital, that are in IC units, that are dying, are triple vaccinated or double vaccinated and more triple than double vaccinated that's the actual <laughs> epidemiology data. So uh, so so you have to you know ask yourself well do these vaccines even work? And the problem is it's hard to answer that question now because when we have our clinical study and now not just us but you know uh I-Corps blood services in Alberta tested people in La Crete, um Alberta North, northern northern um, western part of Alberta, and they found that 89% of the people that were unvaccinated had antibodies against SARS-CoV-2. So natural immunity from our studies, as well as many other studies, over 90% of the population has natural immunity. So if you have this high degree of natural immunity, how can you tell that the vaccines are actually working when most of your population already has natural immunity in the first mm. place. So, mm-hmm. so I don't even trust the data that we're saying, Oh, we have reductions in the hospitalizations because we have, you know, strong vaccination programs. Actually, I don't think that data is necessarily uh, is reflective of the vaccine. I think it's natural immunity.
0: And finally, as we head into fall, what are your feelings? I mean, it's, it's the usual flu season. People are concerned.
1: Well, I am concerned that, that if the epidemiology data is showing that with increased vaccination, that you then have after that temporary protection, you're more prone to getting infected again. Then and we have a very strong push right now for these vaccines. Then I'm I'm concerned we'll have a situation a bit like Omicron, you know, last year, where at the end of the year it really took off and a lot of people got sick. So it may well be that we're reducing people's immune systems against omicron but omicron is evolving to become even more benign and a lot of people have had it so i'm thinking that that natural immunity may in fact protect a lot of people and we won't see a peak like we did last year with omicron or some variant of omicron you know omicron you know um b8 or 9 or something like that so so I think I'm optimistic in that sense. Um, I think it's really, are we going to see another virus pop up like you know, the monkeypox? You know, that that one, the gay community in particular has been affected by this and is a sexually transmitted disease basically. Uh, it is possible to get it if you're around someone who actually has know the puzzles that are 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 open but you know it's very visible and Mm. people that have it know it and you know most people are very responsible they're not gonna while they're sick you know go out and spread it so i don't think that we are anywhere near the kind of concerns that we've had with omicron which is kind of invisible to most people that Mm. you know what appears to be a symptomatic person asymptomatic it has no symptoms in, in in theory it can be spread you know arguments have been made that just before you actually get physically sick you may still have a viral load that's high enough to transmit but i think with most people now with natural immunity that viral load is very low so i don't think people are that transmissible um as they have been in the past, even though the virus is a little bit more infectious. Um, So I'm kind of optimistic actually going into the fall, but I am concerned about the vaccine injury and the damage that occurs that may be permanent, like the myocarditis, neurological disorders, about 14% of um, vaccine injuries seem to involve the nervous system The vaccine can cross the blood-brain barrier, that's clear. We do know that people can produce spike protein for now, not just um, days and weeks, but even months. Even the RNA itself from which you make the protein, that's still detectable more than two weeks after it's been injected into a person. And we've now learned that that RNA that's injected can be converted back to the DNA. So normally the genes that are in your chromosomes that has the information to make all the proteins, the 20,300 so proteins you have, that's in the nucleus of your cells. And that's, that's, that's where the master copy is kept uh, to make all of these proteins and you make an intermediate copy, we call RNA. And that's what the vaccines are delivering, is that intermediate copy, which is very labile. It's not stable. It degrades normally quite quickly. But we've genetically engineered the RNA so that it lasts a little bit longer. But ultimately, it is degraded. However, you can take that RNA, and you can make a back copy of the DNA. And that DNA can go inside your cells into the nucleus and from that DNA copy now you can make a lot more RNA copies again and you can keep doing that for all we know the rest of your life so you may be constantly producing spike protein certainly certainly we've seen this in cells and culture um, multiple reports have been to this it's uh, we call it a reverse transcriptase uh, line one it's actually induced with the vaccines, which is kind of interesting. So this is with liver cells and culture and your liver is your second largest organ in your body. Um, So we do know that it is possible and that it does happen. And contrary to what we first thought that, you know, oh, this is safe because the RNA is degraded and you're not changing the composition of your, your genome. Well, actually, For some people, you are changing the the composition of your genome, and you have a new protein that you're constantly producing, which itself is a pathogenic protein. So this is is the dilemma. So I'm worried about long-term damage, and I do believe autoimmune diseases will be a big thing. It takes years before this is really obvious, but this is a high risk, and we just don't know yet just the extent of it. So mm. that is a concern to me.
0: Now, I was talking to someone last night who mentioned, um, and again, I, I've done like no research on this. I know nothing about it, but I thought I have got you on the phone. I might as well just throw it out there. And maybe you've heard about this, something called the the Marburg?
1: The Marburg virus, yeah. It's a more pathogenic uh, virus of, of concern. Um, but this person was saying this is going to be the next big thing. Well, it's because it's one of these viruses that have been extensively looked at because it is pathogenic. Yeah. People have to understand viruses are everywhere. Um, you can estimate I have, at least by looking at the literature and looking at studies in bats and humans and how many viruses that we are aware of. Certainly, there's, there's been more than eight 9,000 different viruses that have been documented, okay, that are in the environment, but the actual number of viruses that we think exists is in the hundreds of thousands, and mm-hmm. of those, for humans, barely a uh, 100 of them are actually very pathogenic in humans. They will infect us they'll be benign or that is, you know, they'll slowly replicate, uh, but they don't kill our cells. It doesn't evoke a strong immune response and we're okay. But the reason why most of these viruses don't affect us is because in order for those viruses to get into our cells, it's one thing getting into the body and, and, and that's not such a big deal. It's when they get into our cells so that those viruses can replicate and make more copies and spread. That's the problem. But to get inside our cells, they have to bind to receptors that they happen by chance to have a structure on the virus that can latch on to that host cell receptor to allow it to get a foothold, to get inside the cell. So in the case mm-hmm. of SARS-CoV-2, it's the ACE2 protein, a protein that's very important in control of blood pressure. And so We happen to have this protein, the coronavirus, many of them have that spike protein, which has evolved over really um, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of years, maybe even more to recognize that. And that allows that particular variant to then propagate in humans. And sometimes you get that switch from an animal where it, it has those kind of receptors that the virus can get into And then you get mutations that allow it to now skip and and be able to infect now a whole new kind of host. And sometimes it can be pathogenic in that host, and sometimes it may may not be pathogenic, and it can propagate without causing disease. So this is what what we see. So it's very difficult. The the host and the virus have to co-evolve together to make the host vulnerable or susceptible to infection by that virus. So while we're just flooded with viruses around us, very, very few of them evolved actually be able to take advantage of us because it's not only getting inside the cell, it's actually taking control of the cellular machinery that it needs to be able to replicate as well. And Mm -hmm. that's very difficult. So that's why this is very uncommon. And if you have a very lethal, like Marburg virus, a very, you know, when you're infected, you get sick and you can die very easily. It doesn't spread very well. This is why we don't have like, you know, pandemics of Ebola, for example, Mm -hmm. because it's so deadly. People get quarantined right away. They can show the symptoms. And so these are these are not really, they don't really cause pandemics. It's very Mm -hmm. unlikely.
0: I always feel like I'm getting smarter when I talk to you. (laughs) that's good and next time we'll talk about werewolves but um this has been great you're the best thanks for giving us your time today and um again if there's any other interesting things that come up love to have you back and talk about those things too
1: well yeah well there's a lot of things happening you know everything from Yuval Harari and and World Economic Fund and how we're all going to become like cyborgs through to um I would say the the whole issue with the um, the woke culture and the university and uh, dealing with many of those issues, there's a lot of stuff we can talk about that is just crazy times. I would love to talk about that stuff with you. Sure. I didn't sure.
0: know. If you, I didn't know if you'd want to go there.
1: So, oh we're, yeah, we're- well, you know, as a as a university senator at UBC, uh, we deal with a lot of this. And uh, just recently we revoked the um, honorary degree of Bishop O'Grady at UBC. And there's a whole story there that, um, you know, we can talk about at length in another interview.
0: As soon as we hang up on this, I'm gonna send you a link invite to book it. (laughs) Okay, sure. (laughs) I'm all fired up already. This has been great. Thank you, doctor. You're the greatest. And uh, we'll, we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye, kid. Thank you so much for spending time with me today. If you have a question or comment about this episode, leave it inside the app. Go to the App Store, Kid Carson, or contact me through kidcarson.com.